0: That's Bobby Bear there singing all about people being vampires. And before that, we heard uh, who did we hear? It was the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And the, did um, did she pronounce? How did she pronounce the Chandelier? It was quite weird, wasn't it? Quite weird. Quite weird lyrics actually. I should have listened to that before I played it. Um, I did like the tune a lot actually. Please don't get me don't get me started on that one. Don't get me started on that one. Anyway, today um, we have got a special guest in uh, the studio. In about an hour's time, Lenny Kaye is going to be here. Yes, Lenny Kay, who's written a book called "Lightning Striking." Um, it's uh, basically he's a. Uh his 10 most transformative moments in rock and roll from Memphis in 1954 up to Seattle in 1991 and everything in between. Um, he's going to be telling us all about that. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting Lenny. I've been a big fan of his music for years. As Of course, he's also in the Patti Smith group and has been since ooh, 1972, I think. I find out. And he also uh, put together an amazing compilation called Nuggets. Which is one of my favourite records of all time. So, no doubt I'll be bringing all that up, um, as well as talking to him about his new book, which is out this week, I believe, on the White Rabbit. Uh, le- Do we say label? Yeah, we'll just call it a label. Uh, anyway, uh, this is the, um, the Paradise Bangkok Molem International Band, but you knew that already. <phone rings> It's all too much for me to take. If you're a regular listener to the show, you will know that uh, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. I like to play Bob Dylan on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. But that version of Visions of Johanna from the Cutting Edge box set, which came out a few years ago, is quite possibly one of the greatest pieces of music ever recorded. And, and I will fight anybody until the end of my street. Not, not, not physically fighting, verbally fighting. The, his vocal performance on that track is just astonishing. The lyrics are off the scale. The music is just like this speed-driven motor train that's just never, ever going to stop. It just blows my mind, that track. Absolutely blows my mind. And I'm going to talk to Lenny Kaye about it as well. I want to know why that track is not one of the ten most transformative moments in rock and roll. Going to ask him when he gets here. Uh, and before that, what do we hear? Before that, we heard the stairs, of course. They're on their weed bus. How <laughs> we'd all love to be on a weed bus right now.
1: Lady, yeah.
0: <laughs> Whoa, yeah, yeah. My sincere apologies uh, for talking over there. There's that James James White and the Blacks. I tell you what, man, I was listening to it on headphones and it was just like these horns just flying out everywhere, like like some mad uh, attack thing. Brilliant. What tune? And before that, you heard 23 Skidoo uh, with a track called Coup, um, taking me w- way back to uh, alternative discos. Do you remember alternative discos? They're now called indie discos. But back in the day, they were called alternative. Why were they alternative Who knows? Maybe the music was alternative. Maybe we were alternative. Who cares? What is alternative? Alternative to what? It's a big question. It's a big question. Uh, I'm not going to answer it, of course, because uh, Lenny Kay's in the building. Uh, He's just getting himself a cup of tea. Uh, In the meantime, let's listen to a bit of the Patti Smith Group. Whoa! That's the Patty Smith Group with uh, the birds. Says, uh, "Do you want to be a rock and roll star?" Featuring on guitar, Lenny K.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Uh,
0: that's a, a great version. And you were saying earlier on that's one of your favorite tunes that you do.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I really love it. It's got a lot of energy. Of course, I love the birds. Uh, at the time we were living, <laughs> that uh, you know, well, you know, the you know, the the kind of pluses and minuses of 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 rock and being a rock and roll musician you know the 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 great exaltation and and the realities of selling plastic wear, as they say
0: <laughs> i just thought it was a really good a great place to start
1: because oh thank you
0: because you know it's talking about being a rock and roll star and this book that's just come out lightning striking a uh, 10 transformative moments in rock and roll and what people won't realise is that you you were probably there for most of them, Lenny.
1: <laughs> I, either as a fan. I mean, some yeah. of them I was uh, too wee, as they say, yeah, to, but... uh, you know, thank the Lord. Uh, and uh, some of them I looked on from afar and some of them I got to participate in, which is, uh, you know, kind of remarkable.
0: I mean, obviously we'll get into the nitty gritty and we'll play some tunes as well. But I was just interested in um, why was it? Were these moments, moments that you always knew about or did you think, right, I need to find ten and you found ten, or were they just those ten just sprung out at you?
1: You know, I, I just looked at the long history of rock and roll and these seemed to be the moments where everything changed. Yeah. I mean, and... It, and it wasn't even hard to see. I mean, there're cities I wish I would have kind of investigated who also contributed, you know, uh, I'm a fan of uh, electronic music and so uh, sure. you know, I would have liked to go to Cologne in the in the 70s or I love, you know, reggae music yeah. and uh, I would have but some of those topics are a little large for the scope, and I am primarily a rock and roll player. Yeah, I mean, there's,
0: I think there's, there's a bit in one of the, one of the early chapters, because the, the, the first three chapters are all in the 1950s and set yeah. predominantly around rock and roll. There's one bit where, I can't remember the exact quote, but you just say, it's that realisation when you just need a bass, guitar, drums and a voice, and that's basically it. And that was, that was discovered in the 1950s, and here we are, like, 60 years later, and that's still the, the classic combination.
1: It is the cl- you know, I mean, it's the, um, the building blocks of any rock and roll band, and um, you know, it was my chosen mode of presentation. I'm sure uh, artists today who have so many more tools in mm-hmm. a certain way at their disposal, uh, you know, in, in the digital universe, uh, <clears throat> the music's going to sound a lot different in the 21st century. But this this music that kind of started in mid-century went all the way to. Uh, you know the new millennium. Um, you know it it it's got its lifeline, and uh, for whatever reasons, I participated in it from its birth to its kind of afterglow.
0: And it's and and thank goodness you did, and thank goodness. <laughs> and th- well, no, thank you're goodness you're telling you did. <laughs> me. <laughs> and also, thank thank goodness that you could string a sentence together as well, because it, it's beautifully written. and I think what what comes through a lot of it is very. Factual, it's like this record came out on that date, this came on that, this person met that person in this studio, especially all the earlier stuff beef, before you were uh, a, a participant, shall we say? Right. Uh, and that's all really interesting, it's fantastic, but even within that, your love of this genre of rock and roll just shines through the whole book and it's a, it's um it's kind of your religion it's our religion it's my Amen. religion you know and i just think i think people forget the power of rock and roll and i think people forget that it means so much to people, and I think the the way you talk about it, especially in those early days when you weren't there, but you were listening to radios and you were seeing people and mm-hmm. seeing yes. moods change, it's just that really comes through. I think that's a really exciting bit of the book.
1: Well, I, I you know, I, like I said, uh, you know, I'm a mutated kid growing <laughs> up in uh, in Brooklyn and then New Jersey, and not really, you know, I'm kind of an outsider and so i found in the music a sense of belonging and belief and excitement and self-realization and and as i moved from you know just listening to the just listening to the radio no (laughs) listening to the radio and uh then you know picking up a guitar for the first time and then kind of maneuvering through all the changes of of this music which has given me meaning i mean it's I I I salute it. I, I celebrate it, and uh, I spend an inordinate amount of time dwelling within it. <laughs> <laughs> and there was there was a little bit. I was reading this. I actually finished the book on the uh, on the bus
0: this morning. I think it was obviously towards the end. And the uh, the very final bit that you write is you know, was is a really beautiful thing. I mean, hopefully we'll come on to it later on. But you 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 know you talk about how much this music means to you, and it's a, it's a. It's not. It's not a childish love. It's not. It, it's a. It's a real love, and it's something that's, that that really, really, uh, really shows through the words and and also through all the music. And just we we could chat all day, and we will chat a little further. But Excellent. uh In in um with this coming out as well, there's also a CD that's come out on yeah. Ace Records, which is basically a companion to this, a 48 track CD, Crazy, which, which right? you put together with uh, Alec per, uh, Paleo. Paleo, Paleo, which is amazing oh, and he, he basically chose about four or five tracks from each of the chapters, because uh, I don't know if you know uh, dear listener, but the, basically this book is ten different chapters from Memphis 54 up to Seattle 1991, and various moments that Lenny, you know, considers to be transformative moments of rock and roll, and they very much are there's a couple of things that I'm going to ask you about later on that okay. are not in the book, but we'll get on to that later. So <laughs> let's um, uh, let's listen to a bit of um, let's The King. Ah, well, that's
1: all right, mama, that's all right for you, that's all right, mama, just any way you do that's all right, that's all right, that's all right. Hoy, hoy, oh, rock tonight. Hey, hey, oh, rock tonight. Well, I heard the news, there's good rockin' tonight.
0: That's Good rocking Tonight by... Who was it? It was Roy Brown and the Bob Ogden Orchestra.
1: <laughs> it sounds like an orchestra. <laughs> sounds like an orchestra. Was- hey, you, you just saying how weird that sounds. I mean, you know, it's like... It's kind of jazz. It, oh, mean, it's very it really jazz. Is. Yeah. I mean, those guys are like Toodling away oh, yeah, in the yeah. background. That that chord that they end on, you know, that's a Chinese chord that most rock and roll songs don't. Yeah. And uh, and Roy is so cool. His his voice is like oh, turn the news. Like he's right up there behind <laughs> his epiglottal. And uh, and also
0: the, the the previous track Elvis. Oh. I mean that was. I mean that's you know what you, you know what I want to say here, uh, Lenny. There's 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 certain records and certain tunes that we just know so well, that we just say they're amazing without actually listening to them. Because Absolutely. Maybe, you know, do you know what I mean, how, how many times does that happen? you know, with great albums or great singles? That's a case in point, that track there, everybody knows that track, Elvis does that track, that song, everybody knows it, but listening to it today, yeah. I mean, unbelievable.
1: Well, you know, that's one of the great things about the radio, because depending on what frequencies are being pumped in your uh, underground warren of uh, dials and tubes or whatever it does, you hear things. I mean, as we were listening today, I could hear Sam Phillips' hand on the faders when Scotty came in to play his little solo and then pull it back a little bit when, when Elvis came back in. I mean, you are there, and yeah. that's a fantastic thing.
0: And I guess as a kid growing up and hearing those things on the radio... For the first time, you were one of the first people to hear it. You know, it, w- it wasn't like when I was hearing those things on the radio; the, the, those tracks were, you know, f- forty or thirty years old or whatever. You were hearing it for the first time. Can you can you remember how it felt?
1: Well, I, I never. I, I was actually too young to okay, hear. It. Okay. <laughs> That's all right, Mama. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I was close. But but I remember hearing like Hound Dog and okay. and in the book I write about the first time. I, I, rock and roll actually made an impact on me was my sister and I were in the living room when we lived in an apartment in Brooklyn and Little Richard's uh you know wah uh, bop bop bam boom came on the you know radio and we just thought it was the funniest thing. We rolled on the floor in <laughs> laughter. We were like, whoa, and kind of got affected by, by that moment. Uh, I mean, again, you know, you're, you're, you're growing up in a time where music is pretty staid and sure. you know, well-coiffed. Uh, Patty Page, how much is that doggy in the window <laughs> in Hernando's Hideaway? You know, yeah, but, yeah. but kind of adult. And this is the first kind of unbridled release that you hear, I mean, just like, woo! And, and you know, all of a sudden, there was a change in what happened with music. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, I was just on the cusp of being able to surf on it. Sure. So those first
0: three chapters, uh, there's Memphis, and uh, which was uh, New Orleans. New Orleans, and Philadelphia. Philadelphia. So these are all, these are three, and they're really great chapters. Uh, the, the first track was a Memphis one, the second one's a New Orleans one. These are all in the 1950s. So right. they, o- over the space of like maybe four years. There's a lot happening around that time, a lot happening. A lot. I mean, you know, re- I mean, I know it's we- we're talking about the birth of rock and roll and the birth of this genre and therefore the birth of this book, you know, really. But and there's so much going on. But then all of a sudden, two, three years later, you nip over the Atlantic and we go to Liverpool. Is Liverpool. And therefore the Beatles, is that when this music went worldwide or do you think it was already worldwide?
1: Well, I think the Beatles were responding to a certain worldwide aspect of it. I mean, the French did have Johnny Holiday, uh, (laughs) you know, but it was still foreign, uh, you know, but... All of a sudden, you know, and of course the British were were into Skiffle, which uh, is kind of, I, I find a really warm heart in my, for, for Skiffle. It's so like, ah, oh, yes, we're going to be American rural. You know. But I mean, you know, the, you can feel that the tides turning. Yeah. And uh, I, I really like the fact that, you know, you know, I'd spent a lot of time studying what happened in the cavern in the nineteen fifties, you yeah. know, when, you know, they had skiffle bands and that was pretty radical because it was all trad jazz with the bowler hats and the you know, the armbands sure. and the, you know, trumpet mutes or whatever they did. Dixieland. Um it's it's just interesting how this music just kind of infiltrated and got deeper. And yeah, you know, the late 50s in Britain was was very kind of teen idol, but so is America. Absolutely, absolutely. You know?
0: I mean, the thing is one of the interesting things about this book is that it's predominantly American. You know, the most of the stuff that happens is in America, apart from maybe Liverpool and London and there's one small section in Norway as well, but it's mainly Do you think do you do you, do you see rock and roll as being predominantly an American art form?
1: I, I believe so. Uh, I know it translates very well, yep. very easily. Um, also, I'm an American, so <laughs> I, I, I view it through that. I mean, a lot of this book is viewed through my prism. There's yes. a lot of, you know, I would have liked to uh written about the birth of hip-hop in uh, in in the Bronx, you know, but I, I didn't go to the Bronx sure. to see Cool Herc, you know, I was down at CBGB. Uh, you know, doing whatever those uh, those <laughs> wacky kids were doing, but um, Ooh, let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> please, let's save no, that no. for uh, uh, the unexpurgated <laughs> volume. But I mean, you know, I, I I do think rock and roll was born in America, yeah, of course. and and so as it filtered through the world, it emulated. You know, France emulated America, England emulated America until. It was there long enough to take on its own personality. Sure. And obviously when it bounced back with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Yardbirds and Pretty Things and the Kings (laughs) and all that, you know, it it was somewhat of a reflection, but it was different. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I mean, more than Elvis, I remember hearing the Beatles the first time on the radio. I want to hold your hand. And I thought, Wow that is different. Right, okay. And, and then, you know, they're riding this rocket of ascent. And, you know, previous to that, I'd learned a few chords on the guitar and wanted to be that lonely folk singer in the backyard, you know, <laughs> bemoaning my fate. And, uh, <laughs> and as soon as I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and, you know, I know just about every musician from my generation will yeah. say this, but it was a shock. Really? You know, not, not only... Not only for the way they sounded and looked, but their presentation. You know, previous to that, I had seen bands in my hometown. And they were kind of like instrumentally surf bands, uh, you know, emulating the ventures or something like that. Um, Or they were kind of singers on the street corner doing doo-wop. But all of a sudden, there was a whole new band model, you know, bass, you know, two guitars, drums, and... And everybody singing in front. It wasn't like a singer with a backing sure, band. Sure, You know, it was a band, and you know that was in February. By November of that year, nineteen sixty-four, uh, I made my band debut uh, in the Vandals. <laughs> Bringing down the Uh, house with your kind of music. All right,
0: all right. (laughs) At at a
1: local uh, (laughs) college fraternity and uh, set off on a path that I'm kind of amazed that I'm still on, Mm. you know. I
0: I, I guess, Lenny, in a sense, that that Ed Sullivan appearance by the Beatles is probably as transformative as any other moment in this book, in a sense, because it it was a snapshot. It was literally, you know what, five, ten minutes in time, and the whole country was pretty much watching it. And as you say, by... It, w- within 5 6 months probably a lot of those kids had, were, were were in bands and became very Absolutely. very successful oh yeah i mean it's, the the power that the tv had the well you had the tv which was a fairly new thing anyway mm-hmm. but then you have these these four kids from the other side of the world looking the way they did and playing what they did it must yeah it must have been quite i mean that that sort of thing will obviously never happen again but um it's amazing to think that something like that did happen and that the the ripples of that are probably still being heard today Absolutely. which and is an and thing.
1: the fact is is that the beatles lord love them they sound even weirder today <laughs> than they did i mean to lick, listen to something like you know i am the walrus or yeah you know the these are they I, I mean, I have to say, on, on my radio show on, uh, on Sirius, The Underground Garage, Monday and Tuesday nights, <laughs> 8 to uh, 12 midnight. All right, <laughs> get it in there, buddy, get it in there. Um, you know, we play a lot of Beatles. Of course. And so I listen to them just like we just listen to uh, That's All Right Mama. Yeah. And the things I hear in there, it actually mystifies me. They are beyond genre. They're, <laughs> they're just weird, and I don't know how they do it. I mean really that these records which we know so deeply I mean I I know every inflection and on it but you know the more I get from it the more like how did they come up with that what was their motivation yeah. I mean it, it, it's it's a great thing and you know and of course it led into this beautiful flowering of of rock well, as, it, as, as you say, it,
0: it led into flower power a lot. You know? And this is where I think, the, uh, for me, the book really comes alive, is when you start to become really involved right. in things. The, the, the first few chapters, you know, even the, obviously the one in Liverpool, you're, you're looking at it from an outsider's point of view. Yes, you've got your own take on it, and they're very interesting chapters, and don't get me wrong. They, I'm not saying skip them, please don't, because <laughs> you, know, you have to read through them to get to them. But once it gets to 1967... And we're talking about San Francisco in sixty seven and about and you're travelling across the country. You're basically going west, young man. You know yeah, you are yeah. you are going west to find your fortune, you know. And this is this is not the nineteen thirties where you're going to look for work. You are you're just going to look for rock and roll. Absolutely. You, you're gonna go and look for rock and roll. You and your pals are going there. What was that like? I mean, you were young at the time. How how old were you, like 18? I was
1: uh, just uh, just 20. I just graduated college. I was a little ahead of myself in college, but me and my buddy climbed in a 56 Ford and uh, with... uh, (laughs) Uh, some uh, combustibles, yeah. one might well, say. Well,
0: one, 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 one yeah. needs to uh, keep the uh, you know, journey uh, entertaining. Uh, sometimes
1: you need to drive 36 hours in a row exactly. and then wind up and think, where the hell are we? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I, you know, I had that poster on my wall of San Francisco. You know, the it was the New Year's Eve concert uh, from 1966 into 67. Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, and uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service. And I just wanted to hear what these groups sounded like. I mean, I couldn't go to my computer and, and hit a button and see like, you know, the show that they did five minutes ago. Of course, yeah. You know, to see The Grateful Dead, I had to go there. And so the yearning and I knew that's where ha, ha, music happened. So at this
0: point had you heard their records? I I, 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 I hadn't heard
1: the the, Dead's record. I only heard the first Jefferson airplane record, which was kind of folky. Yeah, wasn't really what they were going to. But you heard rumors about them, and that's and that's one of the things about these moments in time is that they all had patience. They they had a long time to gather who they were together without you know wow we've got a band together so let's start posting uh, our Mm -hmm. rehearsals. You know, these bands had a lot of time to figure out what they were doing. The same thing with the CBGB bands. There was a two-year period where Liverpool you know, bands were the same. You know, Liverpool yeah, absolutely. Bands, you know, and I
0: think I think you know the, the Liverpool bands, the San Francisco bands, the CBGBs bands, and to some extent the London punk bands in in the, in, the, in 1977. All these people in, interchanged. They were all in one person's band, another person's absolutely. band. You know. well, you know. We, figuring it out just as you say but they they were allowed to figure it out because there was no there was no internet there was no you know you just literally you, you were in one band one week another band you're six playing for your friends exactly and that's, and that's what all these bands were oh yeah they were all playing for Seattle their friends. as well I have Seattle, to say of course you Seattle know, as well you
1: know, they, it took a long time for it to become what it is what, what it Became. I mm. mean, you know, a lot of those bands started playing in '86, '87, and so it took like three or four years for this concept. You know, when things get a name—grunge, punk—I uh, don't know what else. You know, whatever yeah. the the names, hair metal. Um, by by then, it's kind of over. Le- yeah, it's ex- <laughs> it, 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 well, it a little is. less less Im- unpredictable. I yeah. like those. I like the first couple years of any scene where. Nobody knows what they're doing, so there's wild cards all over the place. It's
0: always the best time of a scene, and it's also if if you're if you think you're in a scene, then you then the scene's probably over anyway. Yeah, do you know what I mean? But I mean, that sounds maybe that sounds a little
1: bit sort of pompous. And, but, and, no, no and, it's not. It's not and, really. And, I mean, I don't mean it's come across <laughs> like that. There, there, there's something about the hindsight. I mean, people are always. What was it like at CBGB? <laughs> you know, I was hanging outside talking to my buddies as, as you know, while the Ramones are Talking Heads are on, and then yeah. you know, wandering back in, seeing a couple songs. It was the local, sure, and and you know, it its casualness gave root to, you know, what I, I, I that great uh, quote from Brian Eno: "Senius." It's not just the bands; it's the people hanging out. Sure, it's sure. The, the time, the culture, uh, and I guess that's that's the thing that uh,
0: connects most of these moments in time that you talk about in this book, and it's that, and it isn't just, you know, they're all given uh, a year and uh, a city, but that year can spread. It's, one or two Either side of it It's, it's, you know. it's, just, it's just a, just it's just a, a hook point. It's just a hook And I just think That's what's really important I just want to go back To okay. uh, the, the sixes again Because there's a tune That's on this CD That Ace have, have We put out That we were talking About earlier on Uh It's a track called Crazy Like a Fox (laughs) and I really want to, because I actually heard it for the first time today I thought I've definitely got to play this too. Can you tell me about Crazy Like a Fox
1: please? (laughs) My my uncle was a kind of songwriter for hire I have a stack of 45s, you know he would just write lyrics for anything Uh, but he did get popular because he eventually wrote the uh, lyrics to Love Theme from The Godfather, Speak Softly Love and um, Love Theme from Romeo and Juliet, A Time For And so he knew that his his long-haired nephew was in a band uh, It was called uh, The Zoo at the time the zoo and uh, for your very own <laughs> horror show with our dancing girls the zulus no way oh yeah Did yeah you? animal skin that shirts, is fantastic you know, bare <laughs> feet you know <laughs> we were right there you were the you were the cutting edge man well man you know if we would have put out a record it would probably be worth you know a few hundred dollars now nobody would have heard it uh, but he calls me up one day uh, eve of destruction was high on the charts and he says uh, would you sing me Eve of Destruction over the telephone? So, you know, the Western world is it exploding. You know, I sing it for him. He says, good. Uh, me and my partner, Richie Adams, have written a song, a folk protest song. We'd like you to sing it. I thought, whoa. So I go to the uh, first time I was ever in a recording studio, Associated Recording, which is kind of a weird demo studio on uh, right on the east side of Times Square, and uh, I sing the song a couple times. Uh, there's a session music, you know, musicians there. Richie Adams overdubs, a bunch of instruments, and uh, you know, it it is kind of my. They, then we chose a name because um, Lenny K was I don't know, not not romantic enough or something. So, you know, they wrote up a list of first names and a list of last <coughs> names, and we chose Link as the first name, and Cromwell because it was kind of subliminally Brit. (laughs) Subliminally
0: Brit Cromwell. So it's like, (laughs) you know,
1: Link Cromwell. And uh, I got to sing a song which, you know, wasn't really much of a hit in those days. I I think I heard it once on a radio station coming out of Allentown, Pennsylvania. But (laughs) it gave me a sense of believability in myself Mm -hmm. as a musician. And uh, I don't know. I, I've, I've always been grateful to my uncle for, for giving me the chance uh, to be Link Cromwell. Well, I think this maybe be the
0: uh, Link Cromwell debut on Soho Radio. So here we go. This is called Crazy Like a Fox from 1966. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Listen to Morning Glory here on Soho Radio, and I'm uh, here with uh, Lenny K, uh, who uh, has just uh, put out this book called uh, "Lightning Striking: Ten Transformative Moments in Rock and Roll," and we're slowly working our way through the ages. <laughs> <laughs> and um, well, we, we heard we we heard your good self from 1966, and then we and then we shot up to uh, we shot up to Detroit, yes. and we heard the MC5 and SRC there. Now, for I mean I. I mentioned earlier about the book about it, it gains a lot more traction when you become quite heavily involved in and I think that starts with the of San Francisco in 67. When we moved to Detroit in 69, I mean, for me, just reading, reading the words, that period, those bands, those artists m- mean so much to you so much to you i can tell it's i mean oh, yeah. I, I know you have been involved in the cbgb scene which we'll get onto. but this detroit scene in 69 must have just been incredible to be part of
1: oh no i mean i sent away for looking at you uh dot my cent a dollar to a trans love energies in ann arbor when i read about it in the east village other and i always like to say when i got the record and i put it on my turntable it it definitely blew a hole in my speakers you know you can just feel the group pushing at the thing um you know mc5 i, I have three favorite groups in rock and roll okay. velvet underground of course of course and the stooges and the mc5 to me wow. that you know covers it i've always loved free jazz you know the the five definitely voyaged further than any band uh in that direction i love revolutionary uh you know clench fist rhetoric um, you know they were great, and unfortunately their their story is kind of tragic because they you know they they were manipulated until they kind of fell off you know f- fell off the precipice. I mean, uh, John Sinclair kind of made them secondary to his uh, revolutionary rhetoric, which you know we all believed in and free everything yeah, and whatever. Yeah. But the fact is is that they were out there. I mean, I when I saw the MC5. Um, I, I talk about the times which I saw them once at the Fillmore East when uh, a radical group invaded the stage and destroyed everything. Uh, but also I saw them uh, with the Stooges opening in 1969 at the World's Fairgrounds. Actually, the, the you know the ruins of the World's Fairgrounds.
0: Lenny, Fair. Lenny, let me just, let, let's just
1: let's just let's just. Am pause. I tempting you? No, can we <laughs>
0: just pause for one second? And I really want the Alyssa just to pause. <clears throat> When I saw the MC5 with the Stooges supporting in 1969, that sentence in itself just puts hairs on the back of my neck <laughs> standing up, my friend. That's ridiculous. I mean, what was that like?
1: I mean, It was, it was great. I mean, the first time I'd seen the Stooges, I believe I wrote the first review of the Stooges anywhere when their album came out. Um, and uh, I said something like, I don't even remember what I said, but I was invited then to see their New York debut at this, you know, in the ruins of the New York State Pavilion, which was, you know, kind of a great setting, you know. And uh, the Stooges were great. Iggy was out there, you know, scratching himself with the drumstick until he bled and everything. But the Five were magnificent. They were a total show band. And once freed from all this baggage that they carted around, they they were just incredibly awesome. Yeah. I have to say, just one of the greatest shows ever, Wayne and, and uh, Fred bending backwards while you know Rob was pointing the microphone at the speakers yeah. and the band and the band the rhythm section thrashing they were a magnificent magnificent band and you know uh, very hard to see. Uh, to me only their third album which is kind of past their prime reflects what they could have done in the studio
0: that's that was going to be my next question actually the, one of the great regrets i believe of the MC5 is that they never truly and you know, got it on record. Whereas the Stooges' first album, Genius. I mean, I mean, I, I never, obviously didn't see the Stooges back in the day, but I can't imagine it was any better than that. I no, mean,
1: well, and Funhouse either. Yeah, and, Funhouse and I've well. listened to the entire, uh, you know, eight CD, <laughs> the Funhouse sessions.
0: I laughed at that bit in the book. You actually talk about that boxer. that boxer that only a few people have got bothered to go through every single tape, and you, you obviously did. I mean.
1: I, I was just interested to see. And, and what's amazing about it is that the takes are not that different. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, maybe a little bit here, but no. But I've also listened to uh, 44 takes of Love's Seven and Seven Is of the 100 that they recorded. And it's that's really hilarious just to see exactly where it's going to fall apart. <laughs> and, you know, oh, it, the drummer flags there, you know. I mean, 100 takes of that song, it got a... You know, but you know that's the studio is process. Sure. In the end, the artifact that we listen to, regardless of which one is chosen, is 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 the one that we take to heart. You of know? course, with flaws, without flaws, whatever.
0: And also, I think the, the real incredible about the incredible thing for me about, about that Detroit thing, it was only like fifteen years earlier. Rock and roll was getting discovered. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was so, it was such a baby. It was an infant. You know, you, we, we talk about children when they grow up. You know, you, you look after them for the first seven years, then seven to 14, you, and then 14 to 21, and then they're off. Rock and roll was only 15 years old, maybe 16 years it, old. It's the it
1: glorious adolescence of rock and roll, and to me... Uh, without a sense of nostalgia, or things were better then, or all that no, 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 things no, no. they I'm say, not that. I believe that the '60s for rock and roll, and probably because music at that moment in time was leading the culture, it was yeah. kind of the arrowhead of the culture. It was like the Renaissance in Italy. Yeah. You know, yeah. you had these larger than you know the the masters. You know, Jimi Hendrix. I mean. My goodness, <laughs> you know. Whoa. Okay. You know. You can start there, but all the you know the Velvets. I mean, all these massive groups. Grateful Dead. Depend. You know. Depending sure. on what you like or not. But these these are are are, are groups that set. A kind of expansive imagination for what the music would be. I mean, also paved the way for the reductionism and the uh, kind of back to basics that mm. punk represented.
0: Sure, sure. Um, just before we move on into the to the nineteen seventies, when you do become very, very integral uh, to this book and to and to the lineage of rock and roll as well, um, there's a couple of things I wanted to bring up with you. Um, I'm a massive Bob Dylan fan, as anybody who listens right. to the show knows, and uh, I played it earlier on. Uh, a version of Visions of Johanna. Uh, it's like from one of those recent sort of box sets, and right. it just sounds—it sounds to me like one of the most exciting pieces of music ever put on on, on tape. Why, why isn't he in this book?
1: Well, where where would you fit him? I mean, the book is about Newport time maybe? and places. Newport's,
0: but that was just one gig, I
1: suppose. That was, you know, I mean. He, you know, you could write about the beginnings of uh, the bleecker McDougal scene, the folk scene he sure. came out of. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Jimi Hendrix really isn't in the book. No, he uh, isn't because either. Because these performers are not particularly tied to a moment. They transformed rock and roll, let's be honest. But the, the, the geographical part of my book, I originally yeah. wanted to uh, subtitle it... Uh, Time and Space and Rock and Roll, you know.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you mentioned your three favorite groups, one of them being the Velvet Underground, and they don't really get that much of a mention. I mean, they they they're in
1: the lead up in yeah. New York. They course, are definitely yeah. kind of the foundation of for what I think the the New York chapter begins with their uh, final appearance at you know, but they were not really a part of a scene. No, they weren't. No, they you know, weren't. they were like uh, wild cards. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm more interested in this this kind of conglomeration of, exact, of energy.
0: Exactly, which is what we're talking about earlier on. It's where everybody gets to meet everybody else and yeah. everybody's swapping bands, which leads us very beautifully onto New York, which is where, of oh. course, the 1970s in New York, you end up in New York and uh, you meet Patty and you start playing with Patty Smith. She's a poet. A bit of a wild child, I imagine. You know, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and you were, and, uh, and and there you were. And then this this scene just starts to happen, doesn't it? And you can, I mean, I know it's it's very well documented in the book, and it's a fantastic read that chapter because it's really his first hand experience. Can you just try and explain a little bit about what you, where where New York was in the early seventies and kind of where it ended up in the sort of the mid seventies?
1: Well, you know, New York. It's hard to believe, but after. Max's closed it closed pretty much uh, after the Velvets played. There, were, there was no bands in New York, zero. I mean, when the New York Dolls came, uh, you know, when I, saw, when I was working at Village Oldies and I saw the poster for the New York Dolls on the wall, and I thought, oh, it's a New York band. And wow. I went to see them and they kind of gathered a scene around them. Yeah. And I believe that was a seedling for what would happen, and uh, you know. So to me, it's the velvets, the dolls, and then this conglomeration of bands spilling over into probably the only place they could play. There was no rock clubs. There was nothing. So, it's
0: unbelievable you know. to think that there were no rock clubs. Having, having zero. A, we we're just talking about how important rock music was culturally in the nineteen sixties, especially in America and the UK. But we're talking America now. It was so important, and also it was. Um, if you got into it, you could make money out of it as well. You know, these, these and I never really got that. When I was reading that bit in the book, I was quite shocked. I, I kind of knew it anyway, but hearing it again from you, that there was nowhere for people to play no, nowhere. at all.
1: Well, you know, and sometimes in a big city like that, because it's such a, you know, cultural uh, mecca for any touring national combination... You know, it's like local bands are really low. You know, you can go see anybody anytime, you know, in yeah. a choice of 10. So to have a local scene, that that's one of the great things, though. It's kind of, it grew underneath all this. You know, New York is a music business center, but here CBGB's this kind of uh, weird bar where these bands start to play, and nobody in the music business knows about them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, just, it's crazy. And it gave them a lot of time to kind of make their mistakes, yeah. learn how to play, uh, have their fights on stage, trade members, like you were saying, yeah. um, and and kind of figure out what they were doing. And then it, it, this locus of energy started becoming noticed. Uh, you know, the English uh, weeklies came by, Melody Maker, Roy Hollingsworth right. was there, Richard Williams okay. came down by. Um you know, NME, uh, and it started. The word started to spread, and by that time, '75, which is, you know, when to me it all starts going overground. We we're we're the band that gets the first real recording deal sure. out of <clears throat> out of CBGB. But you know, there's a lot of interest ab- ab- about the group's coagulating. I was there. quite
0: interested because uh, you talk quite a lot about your own group with Patty and the way that you were. You know, you work, that first time you went in the studio to record your debut album, it was a very new experience for you all. You know, I mean, you weren't... I guess it was never... In- was it, it was never intended to become a record when you first started back in 72 in St. St, St Mark's, was it? You, yeah, 71. You know, I mean, like we,
1: we never intended to have a rock and roll band. I mean, yeah. we, we, you know, if we would, we would have screwed it up. Simple as that. Yeah, probably. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, you know the, oh, yeah, we have to. And then we would sounded like 14 other bands. Sure, sure. You know, but because we grew so gradually, first it was just Patty and myself and, and a random piano player that would quit after the gig because they couldn't figure out what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we got Richard Soul, and for a while, we just played as kind of this, uh, this, this wacky cabaret trio. Yeah, and we could see that we were having an effect. Patty going into her improvisations, entrancing the audience, and we could see that we were having an effect, but. What we you know? What does this mean? Yeah, and and slowly we grew. We added Ivan Crawl uh, on uh, bass and guitar to kind of fill out the sound. And finally, at the end of our CBGB stay, uh, we added JD, right. and uh, we had a drummer. And
0: uh, and that just made it then.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess that's the point. When you got the drummer, then you then that's Then you're a band.
0: Then you're a rock band. Exactly what we're talking you about know. earlier on, right at the beginning. And I guess also seeing bands like. Television, I think, were very important as well to you. Oh. Just seeing that band television, just seeing the the guitar interplay between Tom and Richard, and that, that that must be quite an incredible thing to see.
1: It was amazing. I mean, we played seven straight weeks at CB's uh, in the spring of '75. It was our first. Ex- you know, we would have these kind of random gigs here and there, and so you know, by the time we got up to speed, you know, it was another month before we play again. But at CB's. We played Thursday through Sunday, you know, uh, two two sets a night, alternating with television. Sometimes they go on first, sometimes we go on mm-hmm. first, and uh, I just remember those moments, w- listening to Marquee Moon unfold yeah. in, in that in that bar that still was kind of in the middle of nowhere. You'd walk sure. outside, and there'd be fires and trash cans where the bums would be. Uh, you know, warming their hands, or me and Richard Lloyd would go stand in the lobby of the uh, flop house next door and dodge <laughs> bottles, as they, you know. It, it, but it was kind of homey and and off the beaten path, and we had some freedom to do whatever ex- exploration we needed to do.
0: At, at, at what point? At what point did these sort of aspirations come in that actually, you know, we can we could do something more than this we could actually make a record we could go we could, we could actually go out of town here we could travel we could We could go to Europe with this you know, we could actually make records there must have come a point where it became I mean I know there was a lot of other bands involved there was Blondie who obviously became incredibly successful probably the most successful out of all of those Absolutely. bands and then you had Talking Heads of course who were out there as well and Obviously, yeah. we all love the Ramones. And, you know, oh, they yeah. did what they did. And, you know, they came over here in so 76. Uh, all
1: separate ideas yeah, all separate Ridley.
0: ideas. All separate ideas, but all brilliantly, brilliantly put together. And I just think they they kind of, they don't sound the same musically, but they just, obviously, they just fit together.
1: There was a shared sensibility there. And as it, everyone became more aware of it, then you suddenly realize that this is a scene, you know, in the same way that, the San Francisco bands were sure, seen, sure. and uh, and all of a sudden it, it starts expanding out into the universe at large. I mean, again, you know, you, you never, you can't judge these things, and if you have too much expectation you are going to ruin yourself. Yeah. You know, it was always like, well, this is the next step. And, you know, when we started getting a, a record offer from ESP disc, I would have loved to have I, been on the same I, label. The same labels, Albert, Albert Isla. Isla. That, would that would have been amazing. It would have been. That blew my
0: mind. When I read that, yes, I thought, what you got offered a deal by ESP. Imagine the Patti Smith group being on ESP. I
1: that would have been insane. Well, we imagined <laughs> it, but you know, we, we're, we're, you know, we also, you know, like three minutes sing I don't know. Uh, it just kind of all the stars aligned for sure. us yeah. and and Clive Davis took a shot uh you know I think he needed a little weirdness on his uh Barry Manilow re- uh, la- oriented <laughs> label and uh you know all of a sudden this thing which was very kind of private and 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 very local started making noise around the world yeah. and you know I just remember uh Look, The first gig we played with Patty in Europe was in Copenhagen, and we're in a place called Daddy's Dance Hall, which actually is still there. Wow. And... Uh, you know, I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing these train tracks that look like a foreign film to me. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> There's Jean-Luc Godard is filming over there. And I'm just thinking, man, we've traveled quite a ways. Yeah. And it's, it's so special. i just makes me, you know, makes me. And we're still traveling, which is cr- I got to play the Royal Albert Hall. Can you believe like, it? Like oh, my God. Recently. Yeah. You know, you, you, you Two know. nights.
0: You know what it is, Lenny? <laughs> Lenny, I always have this thing. Like I, I'm a working class lad from Halifax in West Yorkshire, and I have this thing. And I always say to people, I have this thing. I never stop pinching myself. Yeah. Once I stop pinching, like this is you know, I'm actually here. I'm actually here talking to Lenny Kay, whose record I've been listening to since <laughs> I was a child. No, but do, but do you know what I mean, though? In a very similar way, going, I'm actually here in Copenhagen in a foreign film, or I'm actually here playing at the at the bloody Royal Albert Hall or whatever. And I think once once you stop pinching yourself, that's when it kind of goes wrong. And I think there's a lot of people in this book who unfortunately did stop pinching themselves. Oh yeah, and you and, start you believing your myths. Exactly. I, I've
1: never, you know, I mean, look, I have no bangles on. I'm not <laughs> I'm not a rock and roll star, but you know, every I always remember this story I heard once about a, a baseball pitcher uh, from the Boston Red Sox. And once a game, he would step off the mound, and just look around. And appreciate the moment, and then yeah. get back in there yeah. and you know, work on no, his curveball. Absolutely, And I and I try to do that at least once a show. You know, if yeah. however I can't do it while yeah. Patty's singing, or else I'll I'm gonna make a clam and I'm gonna get the you know I'm gonna get <laughs> you get shouted out. Uh, so, but I always try to like you know I mean especially at the Royal Albert, I just like you know one time between songs when Patty's yakking, I just went back to my amp and looked around. I thought, yeah. Well, yeah, hey. now, now I know how many holes it takes. <laughs> 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 right, okay, I think it's uh, time for a musical break. Amen.
0: The garage land—that's <laughs> what I like. It's, to my, hear. It's, it's my thing. On. Oh no, actually, yeah. Sorry about that. I, you know what it is? You know when you're talking you can't hear yourself, and I'd, 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 then I thought that nobody could hear me, oh. but you could hear me,
1: couldn't you? I could hear you. I'm in the room. Are you, are you in the garage? We're or, live. Are you in
0: the garage or the garage?
1: <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where are you? <laughs> oh my god! We're, 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 I'm working on my Daimler in my. Garage okay, but you know what's great about that song is that you, you know, we
0: haven't really touched upon the great compilation that you put out in 72 called Nuggets, and that was a uh, full of bands who basically uh start out in their parents' garages, yeah, yeah. And and here we are, as I know, did, as you did, as you did, and here we are, like, sort of 10 years later. Uh, it's weird to say it was only 10 years later, and there are the other Clash, and that was what was happening in the UK, and I guess you know. There was there was there was things happening in the UK at the same time that was happening in, in New York and you know, you were very involved in the New York scene and and we could talk about that all day but I do recommend you buy this book uh, listeners because it, it's the it's a fantastic book anyway but the section on New York in 75 is obviously uh, very very special to uh, Lenny and it's great
1: I was there because you were
0: there but you're also here as well you were here as yeah, well yeah. in uh, in the '70s when punk was just about happening and there's a great the one of the images that you put forward in the book is that you were you round at Mick Jones from The Clash round at his house uh watching Zulu with Michael Caine <laughs> And <laughs> I just had this image of, like, you know, a of, of, of very young Mick Jones in what would have been maybe 1976 or something, and and yourself, and you're touring Europe for possibly the first time really? uh, with Pat Smith. You just played the Roundhouse, and there you are. You're watching. You're watching. Michael Caine, who was dressed like some old army sergeant, and bloody Zula. What was all that about?
1: I don't know. We were just (laughs) over there. Uh, You know, obviously, we felt a solidarity with the Clash. Uh, Of all the bands, we were kind of friendliest with them. They seemed to have our same kind of positive outlook. I mean, I think uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, tear it down, and we don't, you know, we're you know. But on the other hand, they, they seemed like they wanted positive energy, and 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 worked with their audience uh, to kind of raise them up. We, but we were, you know, quite friendly with uh, Joe and uh, Paul and Mick. And uh, like I said, one day he invited uh, me around. I, I think I was just there, and I'm I'm there in my, uh, you know, the Rastafarian cross and everything. And yeah. we're watching Zulu, and that moment where uh, the uh, approaching uh, Zulu tribe is singing their battle song and then... Um, the uh, beleaguered British regiments uh, start singing, you know, b- Men of Harlech or whatever, <laughs> their, their Welch regimental <laughs> chorus, and it just struck me, yeah, this is beautiful people singing, I, you know, you wish they would just sing at each other and then not yeah. kill each other. Yeah, but, but I, you know, I mean, especially in Britain, you know, where, where subcultures seem very divisive, uh, you know, mods versus the rockers, or, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it Wars of, of style are very important, and of course, UK was very much into style. I mean, oh, absolutely. Most yeah. <clears throat> most of the American bands were, you know, relatively. Uh, you know, I mean, I I just pretty much wore what I wore. Well, you went out, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But there, you had to have a, a certain uniform in the mm-hmm. same way that Zulu had, and uh, you know, it defined you, uh, and it also excluded you, and uh, it gave punk a real specific identity here, where I don't think it had that in America. I mean, and it also gave it a specific musical style, which in some ways was very limiting. Yeah, you know? of course. And, yeah. and I believe that sometimes when you have a musical style that's too well defined, great records are going to be there. No, no doubt about that. Mm. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you, you realize that it's, it's too predictable, and, sure. and, I, and I like it when things are amorphous and weird, and you know, this influence is sliding in through here and that through there. Well, I think that's
0: what happened with The Clash. You know, they obviously outgrew their punk, you Yeah, know, absolutely their, their punk beginnings, which is exactly what they should have done. And obviously, bands like the Sex Pistols imploded before they had a chance to go that. But even you look at something like Johnny Rotten, who became John Lydon, he then did come away from that yeah. with his, his great group. He knew uh, how appeal. to get out of
1: the confinement. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the Sex Pistols album is perfect it's oh, yeah, perfect course, but yeah. they, you can't go anywhere you can't sing a sweet song you can't no. s- and that's one of the reasons i know patty has a longevity because we've embraced all genres sure. we don't want to be typed you know we want to have the freedom to do a sweet uh, acoustic song you know hard on the sleeve and then you know turn up the amplifiers and rip the strings off um, in in that vast expanse you can find ways in which to move forward within who you are and not be trapped in 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 your moment in time
0: exactly i think that was i think that point's really uh, illuminated in the book where you say uh, you play uh, the roundhouse uh, with the pats Smith group and i think uh, correct me if i'm wrong but you and chrissy hind go to see a reggae show right and then you go to the hundred club which is literally about five minutes walk up from where we are now you went to hundred club to see the Six pistols, pistols, and you, you catch the last two or three tracks of the uh, tunes of the pistols, and Johnny Rotten says you know, say something like,
1: Well, you can yeah. t- t- tell us what he said. Did it's you go down it. to the roundhouse to see the hippies? Am I, <laughs> am, am I allowed to say one of the. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course you can. Okay. Horses, horses, horse shit. <laughs> I just, it sounds such a brilliant thing to say, horses, horses, horse shit. I mean, you know, he's but, but- a, he's quite a wit, and you know, I didn't I didn't take umbrage. I mean, yeah, but I am a hippie. My, my ideals were formed in the summer of love. I do believe yeah. in 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 the healing power of of humankind, sure, and uh, and improvisations that stretch. But I also like to, you know ramrod uh, you know I mean you can be a hippie and a punk yeah. and to me you can be you know and, and when you see me in my house dancing around to uh, you know trans Taylor music. Swift <laughs> <laughs> well I, I do love uh, what is it there's a couple tw- Taylor Swift uh, teardrops on my guitar I think is a okay. genius you know yeah. breaks my heart <laughs> but I think, I think
0: it's one of the things about the Patti Smith group which sort of transcended it and you know you, you're obviously very very integral to all that is that you were you, you sort of came out of the hippie world uh, but were embraced by the punks. And I think that moment where Johnny Rotten is at the 100 Club and he's shouting you for being a punk... Sorry, sorry, for being a hippie. But yet there was all these punks around who were getting influenced by what you were doing. And it was that, yeah. it was that sort of cross-pollination that, that happened a, a lot more, say, in America than it do, did over here. It's exactly what you were talking about. Over here it was a little bit more confined. and It just ended up being a street uniform with people with pointy hair and wearing right, right. pins. And it became less and less about the music. Whereas I think in the States... Bands like Talking Heads are a great example of how they evolved musically and yourselves and other people as well. The Ramones, maybe not so much, but,
1: but they're but But that's their charm. That's their charm. That's their charm. That's their charm. That's
0: their charm.
1: And actually, within the Ramones, you can hear them. I mean, there's a lot of discussion. You know, Johnny was not happy with when they were trying to get on the radio. And so I think the album Subterranean Jungle or something, in the early 80s, he just said, you know, we're never going to get on the radio. So let's get back to what we do best. It didn't sound that different, but that's the Ramones.
0: So there's a couple of other chapters left in the book, and uh, it really is, as I say, I finished it on the the bus this morning. Uh, So there's a couple of chapters left, and as I said earlier on, each chapter is basically... uh, uh, a time and a place apart from uh, chapter 9 which is a split over a couple of years Los Angeles 1984 stroke Norway 1993 now on a piece of paper that looks like the most ridiculous coupling <laughs> one has ever heard until we start reading basically you're talking about two facets of metal right on you uh, the beginning is of, of hair metal in LA and I guess black metal in Norway right Um why do you want to link those two together? And what was it about those two genres of metal that was so transformative in a way that maybe, I don't know, maybe Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and those British out-of-the-blues, you know, bands of the early 70s were not?
1: I mean, I, I think it's it's because... I, I love metal. I, I'm I'm out there in the front of the thing, flinging my hair around, and uh, <laughs> you know, I I just I just love the genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, but to me, that those two scenes were the extremities of the genre. Mm-hmm. One total dis- disappetation, and uh, you know, uh, you know, the true sex and drugs and rock and roll. And great songs, you know, but you needed to have a a drum that sounded like it was recorded in a cave and, you know, I mean, all the (laughs) tropes of it. But it seemed like a really incredible moment in time about to be wiped off the face of the earth almost immediately by grunge. And then if you go across the ocean and uh, you go to Norway, that's a tale. (laughs) That's That's like a horror movie come to life. And the music isn't bad. I mean, mayhem is... It's pretty awesome. Well,
0: I've, I've got a, a bit of a soft spot for Mayhem, the band Mayhem, because a couple of years ago on this very show, I had Thurston Moore on from Sonic Youth and Necro Butcher from Mayhem. And <laughs> I know, and it just even saying that just makes me smile. The odd couple. The odd couple. But well, they, they're very good pals, actually, weirdly oh, enough. That's so- and, and also what's really weird, one of them is very small, one of them very short, one of is very tall. Anyway, just, but th- what Thurston, he was just, his, his love, of that sort of black metal scene which I've never really got my head around because to me it is all it's all a bit dark for my world and I'm very much like yourself a very positive uh, but meeting up with Necrobutcher Butcher and talking to him, I, I could see the sense in it, but then there 's this book that he put out and i 've got it at home and I, I have to keep it on the top shelf you know just in case any any children come around because <laughs> it 's a little bit scary in bits, and it kind of goes against everything that I believe in rock and roll, which is what which is why I was quite surprised it was in here because you 're such a positive person, everything about this. Is such a positive thing. that there's this small little section about Norway where it's quite nihilistic and it's quite, it's just I don't know. It's quite, it's quite awful. It's quite horrible. Right? I know it's it's
1: totally horrible. But a, I have a good sense of humor. Thank goodness. And uh, and also, it's such a wacky story. I yeah. mean, it's probably the wackiest. T- and I just loved having an opportunity to delve deeper and deeper in, into it. But of course, what I find most charming about Mayhem and Nor- Norway's black metal is that Euronymous, the lead singer who was killed by the bass player in Mayhem. He owned a record shop. You know, he was there selling you know Kiss picture discs and Voivod and whatever. I mean, he was a fan. You know, he I mean he, he believed. You know, and also that chapter is about the dangers of believing too much right, yeah. in the myth. I mean, I've lost a lot of friends, Johnny Thunders. Yeah, you know, uh, I can count. Oh, you know, on on you know the people far, who I've far looked, too many, far too many. far too many. And you know, if you believe the myth of rock and roll, I mean, I believe in certain myths that it empowers you and illuminates you, but you know, I'm I'm not gonna. Get into that thing where you know you you just go over to the dark side and become. I think I have a, a sentence in the book about you know when they made Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they didn't actually chainsaw massacre. It's art also, yeah, yeah. and you have to have a slight bit of distance, but understand that through your art, you're kind of getting rid of all these wacky emotions that we have as humans, these conflicting, murderous emotions, some. I mean, and you can see it throughout the world these days with people... uh, you know, killing each other sure, for what the heck, sure.
0: but I, I, I think it's very important that it's in there because uh, you know, I, I imagine, as do you, I suspect that most people who buy this book will know you through the Pat Smith group, will know you through Nuggets. They will look at it and go, Great, there's going to be a bit about Liverpool in there, there's going to be a psychedelic bit, a bit about CBGBs. All of a sudden they're all suddenly going to come across that chapter, and you know, well, I, I hope... mean, I'm, I'm maybe I, I think we're unusual in the fact that we know about this band. Mayhem from Norway. Most people don't know about it. Let's be honest. Most people don't. So hopefully they'll read that and it'll be a little lesson.
1: I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I've been in, involved in rock and roll for 50 years. I'm, I'm not a perfect person. I have stayed out too late dancing to White Wedding. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is, is that, yeah, th- this is as extreme as it gets. And it paves the way for the next chapter, Seattle, yeah, which... which in a weird way is darker
0: it is and that's what you know this it'll be the final chapter that we're going to talk about before you have to go and do something uh, but uh, the seattle chapter again it's got a lot of similarities with say liverpool with the cbgb's oh, yeah. one uh, where everybody's interchanging bands and it's a real community they they're stuck out there in the in the in the northwest where it's rain and cold all the time and they, and they're just getting it together getting it together. but of course it just implodes with you know the the horrible tragic almost inevitable death of the person that was at the forefront of all Kurt Cobain from Nirvana and you know even now it's hard to talk about those times because it was you know that that music was so exciting at the time I was at the right age you you know in the the late 80s I was like 20 27 28 and so when bands like Mudhoney were coming over Soundgarden, that was I was I was in there. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I was yeah. I was listening to acid house, but I was also listening to <laughs> <laughs> Mud Honey. Do you know what I mean? I was a, yeah. I was a, you know I was doing doing all that and uh,
1: we contain multitudes.
0: We as Bob Dylan very recently said, uh, and I just think it's a it's a it's a great end to the book. And uh, what is it about that Seattle scene that you felt was so important to well, document? I
1: mean, I mean, it, it it became a thing, you know. It was grunge, whatever grunge is. But also the bands that came out of there were so powerful. I mean, Pearl Jam still one of the most heightened bands that are there. In fact, uh, we played in Asbury Park in uh, in September uh, on on a, on a festival bill with them, and I'm standing by the side of the stage, and Eddie comes running over to me, says do you know how to play rockin' in the free world? Well, I actually do. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm out there. I'm wow. playing with Mike McCready and uh, Stone Gossard and, and being a part of them. They, they respect our positive energy as yeah. well. Uh, Soundgarden and Alice in Chains are still not given the respect. that Because I, I didn't know that much about them when I started. Of mm. course, we all know Nirvana and I know sure. some of you know. I love the Mel- The Melvins are one of my favorite groups in the world. But, uh, you know, to listen to what Soundgarden did, Chris Cornell's voice, Kim Thale's guitar, Matt Cameron's drumming, these time signatures that are completely abstruse, really complicated, deep music. Alice in Chains, some incredible music. And, you know, to lump it all as grunge, but the fact is, is it was a very dark music. It was very, you know, it was very consumed with death, And as a metaphor for the kind of the last moment where rock and roll is evolving, at least for me.
0: Yeah, well, that comes on to my final question, obviously, and sorry to interrupt you, but we are slowly running out of time. Uh, It ends in Seattle in 91, and we're now now 30 years later, and you've carried on in those 30 years playing rock and roll and believing in rock and roll. Uh, There's a great bit at the end of the book where you talk about why it stops in 1991, and why, you know, and that you still do believe in the power and the force of what you're talking about rock and roll and the thing that puts a smile on our face. Um, can you just sum it up in maybe a couple of minutes why it ends in 91, the book?
1: Well, the, bu- the book is about the evolution of rock and roll. And I believe sometimes musics explore, genres explore themselves as fully as they can. After that, it becomes not innovation, but interpretation. Sure. I mean, take the blues for instance. Blues will live forever, and there's going to be incredible blues guitarists coming, probably right now. But they're going to they're going to be doing things that are recognizably the blues. The blues is not going to suddenly transmute into you know bebop. Sure. It's not you know there'll be great bebop players, uh, Dixieland jazz. Mm-hmm but i like when musics have parentheses around them when you can see their entire lifeline and arc and the influence you know rock and roll will be part of the 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 palette of of musics that you can pick from to season your own musics uh, and who knows what it's going to happen but to right now in the 21st century with all these new digital tools um, you know, I'm, I'm not. Music is never better then, or worse now, or whatever. Music is just is. Yeah. Music is the present <laughs> tense. When you hear, you know, when I listen to the MC5, I hear I'm participating in the unfolding of that song. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm playing guitar on stage, I'm participating in that moment. Um, but you know, at this point, everything's done with the electric guitar that could possibly be done. Twice over, at least. Yeah. And so it, it will live forever. But I'm all for, like, let's make way for the new. I, I dig the new. Uh, I may not participate in I may not know even that much about it. It's probably happening somewhere. And uh, they're looking at the electric guitar and thinking, eh, you know. Or maybe they're saying, maybe if I put it through this yeah. filter and sampler, it can sound like, uh, you know... A paranormal electric guitar. But to me, rock and roll as an evolutionary force has been figured out. And there's enough of it there where now you have the whole sea of it to dive into. I'm still finding great records every time I go to, uh, you know, a record flea market or something. You know, things I didn't know about. So now it's kind of horizontal instead of moving vertical.
0: Well, I think that's a brilliant way to end. Lenny Kay, thank you very much
1: for coming in today. James, it's been a total, total pleasure talking to you. Anytime I'm uh, roaming around uh, Soho, I'm going to stop in here and uh, yak for you. Thank you
0: very much. And uh, please, everybody, go out and buy this. It's out. I think it's out out now, is it? Yeah. Uh, On the White Rabbit books, of course, White Rabbit.
1: Oh, man, Lee well, yeah. Braxton, I mean, there's a guy who likes music. Oh, just, a, just a
0: little, just yeah. a little. I, I, would, I would tell you, the, the very first time I met Lee, who, by the way, if you don't know, is the publisher uh, of this uh, book, when I first met Lee uh, at a gig um, many years ago, uh, he came up and said, James, well, I'm Lee. I went, oh, how are you doing? He goes, have you heard the Troy Tate demos of the first Smiths album? <laughs> I was going, uh, well, I don't know, listen, listen. <laughs> you know? And I, I'm, I'm at a gig watching a rock and roll band, and he's telling me about the Troy Tate demos of the first Smiths album, just making me listen to things. I could hardly hear
1: it. A tiny little iPods. Anyway, he's a music fan. He's passionate. He's <laughs> very <laughs> passionate. And, I, and he's really been helpful with this book, you know. He, he read it closely, uh, told me that some of my jokes like... Uh, talking about the Melvins and the aroma from Tacoma. We're a little bit out of the... (laughs) (laughs) I will say, Lee, if you are listening, uh,
0: I was reading a bit this morning where... um Lenny mentions uh, a few bands that are quite drone, He mentions the Space band Three, and in the book it's T H R E E, and it should be the number three. So
1: uh, that's a uh, one mark off. I you. Actually, I met Jason Pierce yesterday. And I'm sure he and said the same thing. He said, mm, <laughs> you "Misspelled our name." Okay, <laughs> I'll get it in the paperback version for sure. Very anyway, nice guy.
0: Fantastic, Lenny. Thank you very much. It's my it's my pleasure, James. My pleasure. Mate. Uh, we're going to finish with Mud Honey. Touch me, I'm sick. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming. It's been a brilliant. pleasure. A
1: pleasure. Thank you.